Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. can mean only one thing, the start of another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. I'm Nikki Dakota, so glad to be here today, joined in the studio by the very gentleman about whom this song does extol their virtue, and they're whistling as we work. It is the lovely and talented uh, storyboard artist for the Coen Brothers for 20 years and counting and friend to all the big stars, and hey, he likes us too. He's J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, Welcome. <laughs> Nice. Whistler. Also in the studio today and uh, traveling some distance to be with us on this particular occasion. It is our pleasure to welcome a fine, fine, uh, not so good a whistler, I'm just going to say, but a great, great baritone. He is the nitrate film archivist for the Library of Congress, and we also call him friend George Williman. Thanks for being here. Good morning, <laughs> Nikki. Are- since we've been last in the studio, George has seen 893 million films. Just amazing. Our tax dollars at work. Thanks both of you guys for being here. And it's kind of a special occasion on Filmically Perfect yeah, here. That uh, theme song was written by two of our good friends, uh, Tom Maxwell and Ken Mosier, formerly of the Squirrel Nut Zippers. They uh, did this for a movie uh, George and I uh, produced called My Mummy, which isn't out yet. Uh, but those guys were so kind to write this just for our movie. We pilfered it for our radio show. And they gave it to us. So it belongs to the film guys, and we're very, very pleased to With uh, have their permission. <laughs> our beck and call. So think about uh, this thing, all of us coming together and making this all happen. And there are many, many people that are involved in that occasion. But let's also say that this is not an ordinary show. No, it's, it's well, it's never an ordinary show. <laughs> this is particularly abnormal, this one. We didn't do the formula card this time. <laughs> yeah, we get, we get lots of letters and requests and, and people saying, well, why don't you do this film? Why don't you do this? Or what about this and everything? So we decided to totally ignore all those letters and blow them up <laughs> and said, do something that we wanted. Yeah, we said, laugh while you can, monkey boy. <laughs> By the way, just get in here real quick that if you would like to write to us and uh, possibly be ignored or maybe even taken up on an offer, it's uh, filmguys at perfectmovie.net, always a great place to touch hey, base with Mary the guys. Mary Marker sat in her car and waited for a half hour. Mary Marker will love you. Yes, we do. That she was a really lovely and, letter. And she was great. Yeah. Also, check the website, perfectmovie.net. You can also get us on podcasting and at npr.org. I'll tell you what, all kinds of ways to get your filmically perfect fix. But on that note, before we progress to this special show, let's remind everybody of why we're here, what it is that brings us together. Well, uh, I believe that every drop of rain that falls, a flower blooms. <laughs> and George? What? <laughs> oh, wrong script. Wrong script. Not raison d'etre, raison theatre. <laughs> wrong script, wrong script. Let's talk about the rules, the trademarked rules. Am I not? Am I, am I right in the copyright? Rule. Trademark rules, and they are all of our perfect movies create the world they exist in, and they wholly sustain that world. And regardless of changes in society, they retain their meaning and entertainment value. And never, 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 never are they ever put in any sort of numerical order. They stand on their own two feet. And I will add at this point that oh. there is a fifth rule that fifth rule. that is if I don't like it, then well, then we invoke rule number six. six. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. On that note, we take in, uh, take these uh, these uh, overriding uh, we principles. Must, we must bring in something we're not going to use this week, so we're going to do it anyway. Yeah, oh ahead. well, that that one thing, that one little extra that is. Uh, Spoiler alert, done by one of our favorite pals in all the business, Douglas Thornton of Puss Scores in Fort Thomas. Is it, George? Fort Thomas, Kentucky. Fort yes. Thomas, Kentucky. And he, he compiled that whole thing, the, the whole steps coming us, up. Man. Thank He's you He's one of our much. biggest supporters. Thanks, yes. Doug. And there's a, there's a room missing from his house because of that explosion. So. <laughs> so we come together, and a lot of people help us do it. And on this very special Filmically Perfect, we are not looking at just one film, but as a matter of fact... Uh, this is to help people because they're interested in some of the film historical the historical points of uh, our film commentaries and uh, George came up with this idea because he is a film archivist and uh, he has all hey. the knowledge here and so we're going to tell him what we're going to do George we are going to look at three films that change the world Whoa. of film <laughs> <laughs> we need to get Doug on a sound effect for that. Three films that changed the world. Now, with that, are we going to go through these chronologically with the first one that sort of had the effect? And and just before we start, have did the one, the first one, then uh, contribute to the making of the next that then turned it on its ear and then to the next? Or are these like almost singular events? I would say I would call them singular events. I mean, they all kind of come out of a, a certain need. At the time, the film industry's need. I mean, film industry is like the car industry. Nothing happens unless it absolutely has to. So <laughs> that's, that's what sadly these, these, true, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so we start with. Well, we start way back in 1903 mm. uh, with a little film called The Great Train Robbery. And this film was made by the Thomas Edison Company and was directed by Edwin S. Porter, who was one of uh, Edison's. He's kind of a tinkerer, but he. he sort of fell into the directing mode at Edison's studio. And um, the, the, the reason this film is so important, and this is, this is hotly debated amongst film people. Um, well, you should just see those guys fight over this. <laughs> oh, it's not it's down drag. It's nasty. Really Dentures ugly. are flying through the air. Hair pieces askew. It's really bad. It's over 140 they years those, ago. That they, they have those things around their socks, and they're pulling them down. You know, it's right. really ugly. You think they worked this out in over 100 years? Shredded polyester suits, and you know, and some of them are even forced to take a bath afterwards. But um, so, what do these unwashed actually hotly contest? <laughs> The boxer short gag is my favorite one when those guys are fighting. They pull it up over their heads and, oh, you can't use your arms, no! <laughs> well, I think roughly for a lot of people, this, this film has often been uh, acclaimed as the first film to tell a story. Now, of course, it isn't. Oh. Um, I mean, there were films, George Melee's was doing films with stories, you know, at least two years ahead of this, but... Um, but as far as the American cinema is concerned, and that's where it's really important. Um, yes, we make movies. The, the French make films. Right. Always remember that, folks. <laughs> Quoted at your party. This this movie did did usher in the era of the narrative film because up until that point, for the most part, films coming out of the American studios were little vignettes of everyday life. You know, like woman feeding chickens, or you know, train coming through tunnel, or you know, parade of soldiers. And those were like their that. names. Yeah, yeah little, little kid on steps table. on ants. That's my favorite one. Yeah, um, and every once in a while there'd be like maybe a little comedy sketch or or something like that. But they they didn't run more than one or two minutes. And this film was was very different because it was is 
it's 10 minutes long. Oh, 10 whole it's minutes? 10 You're whole kidding minutes. me. I've been hearing about real. this film all my life, and it's only 10 minutes long. It is long. 10 minutes long. It, it's about, I think, maybe, I don't know, a dozen scenes. And and the the scenes play out, you know, each scene plays out in total. There's no real editing back and forth. There's a little bit, but not very much. Um, but it really caught the people's interest, and this is what they wanted now. Because the film business had gotten in kind of a doldrums. In fact, a lot of the theater owners were using movies as a way to chase people out between their live shows. They start running a movie, and people <laughs> go, oh, not woman That's chasing hilarious. chickens. I've seen that one ten times. <laughs> so, you know, so the film business needed something, not only to get people coming back to theaters, but also to give it a little more you know, legitimacy. So we're talking uh, uh, 1903. And when was the actual first what we would call movie made? So how long were we having um, suffering through the vignettes? Uh, 1894, 1895. Really? Wow. So yeah. 10 years. So almost Remember, 10 years. Remember, folks, in 1903, there was no airplanes. And the Wrights were flying in December of that year. And there was very little you got to remember, there wasn't much going on in 1903. This is a big deal, and George, is it? I've I've read and heard that this really startled audiences. Some of the scenes in this in this movie really captured yeah, people's they, imagination to the point where they were fearful. They, well, the the end of the film and this shot, there's one shot, and usually appears at the end of the film. But the catalog said you could put it either at the beginning or at the ending, and it's a close up of an actor named George Barnes who pulls his six shooter up points it directly at the camera and fires it about three or four times. And 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 people were just absolutely terrified by this. You know, this guy's shooting at him. Uh, he's really big. He's like 20 feet tall. Yeah. And there's a really great movie if you but can find it. But if you've never it. seen it, I mean, no, yeah. There's a great film called The Gray Fox. There's Robert Farnsworth in it. And it's, it's about a, an ex-con who gets out and, and goes to, I think, up into the Yukon uh, to try and start a new life. And there's a scene, it takes place around 1903, where they go to see the great train robbery. At the end, when there's the scene of the, the shot of the guy firing at the camera, all the cowboys go nuts and they start firing back at the screen. <laughs> But, but of course. But one of the, I'm sure a lot of you folks have seen that image of the cowboy because they use it in commercials. It's very, and yeah, it's, it's very it's iconic. A very, yeah, it's, it's become indelible in our society, I think. Uh, now, one of the things a lot of people may not know about this film is that is that there are special effects in this movie. There, there's traveling mat work in this movie. I mean, explain <laughs> what traveling mat work is, George. Yeah. Traveling mat work is basically there. It's, it's where you, um, you actually block out part of the scene so that it's not exposed on the film. And then you wind the film back, and then you cover up the rest of the scene and insert a, another image in the blank spot. Um, this seems marvelously advanced for that time. It is. And I think a lot of it has to do with Porter because Porter, like I said, was a tinkerer. And, and he, he got out of film directing later on and actually uh, was instrumental in starting a company, which may still be around, that developed this 35-millimeter uh, projector called the Simplex. And, um, but there's a scene where there's the, the, in the mail car, when they rob the mail car, the mail car door is open, and you can see trees going by. And it took me a long time to realize that those trees were matted in later. The trees going by, and the, the boxcar is just a set on a, on a stage. Later in, like, maybe five years after that, they used what they called a scene scroll, which is like a shower curtain with a scene painted on it. And they would just 
put they that on that. a rotisserie yeah. while the person's They do that running. in cartoons. I remember yeah. even as a kid, I would figure Silent out, movies hey, and Max Sennett and those guys. ran by that but, same tree yeah. 12 but times. George, what George is talking about here is one of the very early optic effects in movies where yeah, they actually yeah. did it on the literal camera negative. Yeah, there's actually there's actually two of these matte shots. There's one right at the beginning in the uh, in the station master's office. There's a window, and you see the train pull up outside, and you see people in the train waiting, and that's all matted in too. It's really well done. It's amazingly well 100 done. Hundred years ago. Now, did you figure that out because you have a keen eye, or did you figure out that that's just how it technically, mechanically, must have been done? No, I just well. So it's well it's done, done, even yeah. optically. I mean, yeah, yeah, you can. I mean, if you really look at it, once you notice it and you really look at it, you can kind of see around the edges where the 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 mat kind of goes into the picture. But they've done a really good job of covering it. Yeah. So yeah. One of the three most are we saying most influential most uh, I would say very influential it it changed the film business you know before you had women chasing chickens now you had actual <laughs> like, filmic, I, I want to look that up now. well because the actual you know this 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 film even though it's only 10 minutes old or 10 minutes long excuse me has a complete story beginning middle end it's like one of the first narrative movies where you actually use the story and you got involved in the story where you, like for instance George was talking about those people actually got terrified by the gun People, you're entering believability land there when that with happens. The, with the success of the Great Train Robbery, all the other companies jumped on the bandwagon, and pretty soon, every week you could expect a new film from Edison or Biograph or Kalem or SNA or one of the little companies that was grinding out pictures, signaling the uh, the, the bell tolling for uh, vaudeville. Oh yes, yeah. A lot of the vaudeville people then went to the movies. Hey hey. Sometimes they showed both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're, you're listening to Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO on this very special edition. We're talking about the three movies that changed, changed the, world. the world. Certainly, uh, the, the Great Train Robbery from 1903. Um, and I'm very, very interested to hear this. I didn't realize. you just I just always assumed that movies were pretty much as they are now. Mm-hmm. The next uh, amazing uh, stood-on-your-ear innovation. The next movie that changed the world. Yeah. The Jazz Singer. Oh, and what year was that out? 1927. The Jazz and this Singer. This movie, Jolson. this movie signaled the end and demise of the silent era. This was it. When this movie came out, all bets were off on silent pictures. Actors, all sorts of people, just kind of went with the undertow out to the ocean, literally, figuratively speaking, not literally, of course. Uh, like uh, Max Sennett and all these giants of the silent era just went away. They just just faded away yeah. because sound took over. That's like almost sad. If you didn't have a good voice or if you had a really heavy accent, you were pretty much doomed. And that's and it's amazing because Emily Yannings, who won an Academy Award for Best Actor for a movie called, I believe it's The Patriot, uh, headed back to Germany because he's, his English was terrible. And he took up a, a, a talking, uh, you know, his talking picture career in Germany. That's kind of sad. Well, this, I hope well, it was to sad say. for a whole lot of people because <laughs> yeah. these these big dogs that had made lots of money, untaxed money because there was no income tax back then, like Chaplin and those boys, uh, they were just finished. You know, Chaplin had a little bit of a career later, but he was never ever ever equal equal what he had uh, done as a silent screen actor because they'd really tailored their performances well, in a way to not having sound so it's even a different even art form really Chaplin was luckier than most because he actually he withstood the 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 sound until like 1940 I mean he made two films in the 30s uh, City Lights and Modern Times which to me are two of his absolute best works uh, City Lights is pretty much completely silent it's got a wonderful score 
to it that, that he wrote along with some other people. And Modern Times is, for the most part, silent. He does do one – he does a song in, like, nonsense language because he loses the lyrics to it. And you actually do hear his voice. You know? But uh, other than that, you know, there is no sound in it. But Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, all those guys became just gone they made appearances occasionally, like in Sunset Boulevard. You know, you'll see Buster Keaton. Oh, when they're playing the cards, is that yeah? But when they did this thing, what really was going on with the movie industry, and to this day, I don't think it has ever recovered from, is that at that point in time, they were on to this thing called a visual language that worked all over the world. There was no uh, language to slow anything down, and Hitchcock. In some of his writings, I remember reading saying that there's this visual language that they were developing that was hunting for fruition, and sound just knocked it down. There was no more, uh, there was no more development in this incredible language. Uh, Lillian Gish has said that that her minister, her Baptist minister, and she's from Springfield, Ohio, and she was in all D.W. Griffith's uh, big movies and everything. Beautiful, just gorgeous-looking woman. Even to this day, her. She's just, just she fantastic. She is a real beauty. She said that her minister told her that because he didn't think that she should be in the movie industry because Satan, it says in the Bible, Satan's going to come as a light. And that light <laughs> was the flickering image, and in his opinion, was the flickering image of the motion picture because it was able to speak to all cultures because it was visual. It would be a language that would be universal. And that's what her minister, I think he was, was he the Baptist minister? But her minister was very upset that she was in this because he really felt that that was the way the devil was going to talk to everybody through this visual language. So before sound, the language in movies was a visual language. That's very interesting. And it was in it. And it it was a language that worked for all cultures. Mm -hmm. You could understand it. And then when sound came in, then you had to do. A lot of people give me a hard time when I. I don't like subtitles. I'd rather have it dubbed. Cause I, I need want... to see it twice if it's subtitled. See, you're, when you look at what a filmmaker does, he's trying to make sure your eye is seamlessly moved over that. He wants you to, or she wants you to draw focus or whatever. But when you have to keep looking down at subtitles, it breaks that continuity of visual uh, storytelling. And that's why I don't like them. I'd rather have them dubbed. Um, but this all harkens back to when silent pictures were around, it was a visual language. And sound, which came in with a jazz singer, they just knew that that was the way to go because that's what everybody in the United States wanted to see was English singing. Uh, Al Jolson sang in that movie, and that was a big deal. This is uh, in the 20s. And he um, was a huge vaudeville. Right. Well, huge. The, the, amazing, the amazing thing about the jazz singer, when you actually see it, and I believe it may actually be coming out this year on DVD, I, I think, um, is that for the most part, for 95% of the movie, it is silent. It's a silent film with a musical score, and when the people talk, they, they talk in, in, in intertitles. But then when Jolson oh, gets really? up, yes, uh, about 20 minutes into the film, uh, Jolson is introduced at this nightclub, and they ask him to come up and sing a song, and he comes up, and suddenly it goes into sound, and he sings Toot Toot Tootsie. And then sings another song. And then as soon as he's done singing, it goes back to being a silent film again. Now, intertitles, of course, are where it breaks to just uh, typeface, where they're saying there. Now, did they plan that on purpose to completely jolt people, get every, lull everybody? Oh, this is just your regular run of the mill. It's interesting that I believe it was Harry Warner who said of Vitaphone, which was the process they had bought the rights to, that it would usher in a new era of films with music and sound effects. Because their whole idea of Vitaphone 
was to be able to supply the little theaters, like like the theater in Yellow Springs or something like that, with these records that would have full orchestral scores to go along with the films, not to make talking pictures. Yeah. Interesting. When the, when, the, when the jazz singer came out, that soundtrack, and believe it or not, was on 78 RPM. Right, so that, it's wax discs. Wouldn't you love to have one of those? Yeah, they're they're very large. Uh, well, it had some some were normal, like like twelve inch records. Some were actually sixteen inch records. And actually, I thought they were seventy eight too. But they actually ran at thirty three and a third. Oh. They actually ran it at, at the same speed well, as. A, but they were they had to make them bigger because they couldn't they didn't have micro groove recording yet. Visualize a big wax platter, and and they had to literally almost drop a needle on there to get a synced picture. Uh, this, oh, this is the old days, Yeah, man. they had an amazing system worked out. The record actually has an arrow stamped on it. And the records play from the center out to the edge rather than from the edge into the center because centrifugal force works better if you're going outwards. So That makes sense. I wonder why anybody little, ever changed. But anyway, that's there's another a little, show. There's a little arrow stamped on the center of the record, and you put the needle right on the point of that arrow, and then you had a, a, a frame on the film that said start. And you put that right over the opening of the the projector, and then the phonograph and they are all one big machine. And you'd start it, and the record and the film would start together. And then you had just enough blank film that it would get up to speed. And then when the title flashed on, hopefully you were in sync. Sometimes <laughs> not. Kind of like now, the Wizard of Oz and Dark Side of the Moon. But anyway, well, you look at uh, Turner Classic <laughs> Movies. Sometimes will show these. You'll see at the end it says Warner. You know, it, it, they had their own thing, Vitaphone. But that was replaced by a system that has been around a long time, which is an optical soundtrack, which still to this day is absolutely amazing. You see these little white blips. It has only been recently replaced by a digital soundtrack in some places. But that optical soundtrack replaced Vitaphone. Now, Vitaphone tried to lock up the market, I think, and then the Western Didn't they all with Technicolor and Western Electric came along with this incredible to this day I still think it's amazing little light blips on the side of the frame which it was read by some mechanism and transferred into a speaker yeah. it is amazing it's beyond it it's astounding I mean before then you saw things pretty square and then they cut the side of the picture off and that's how aspect ratios started developing because they had to play it put the uh, soundtrack on this on the thing. actual on film the so you lose image sp space given over to sound so uh, 1927 the jazz singer marking well, the end of well and the one reason we should say of why this came around like I said you know these things only happen because they have to <laughs> and something had come along that was keeping people home from going to the theater and that was radio, radio. yay radio and <laughs> I mean, shows like uh, – I have heard that Amos and Andy had started in, in the late 20s, and Amos and Andy was such a popular program, and theaters would just be empty when it was on, that there actually was a time some theaters would actually stop their shows, bring a radio console out onto the stage, and, and play Amos and Andy so that the audience wouldn't, wouldn't leave. leave. So anyways, yeah. So, funny. Well, so, people are that way about excursions. Right. So talking, so talking pictures came about because they had to. They could have they could have started talking pictures years earlier because you know there there was a working sound system by like 1922 but they didn't want it the companies didn't want to expend the money on and talking think pictures. about this folks some of the greatest stars of the 30s are great and still memorable because of their voice and you know they what? all funny. did radio work back then here here now although I think it's at least notable that what was I don't know who decided whether or not people had voices, but it seemed to me that the trend that, well, you had a voice, is that if you had a mildly British accent, 
Yeah, that, that what seems was to be... that? I don't know. I guess because they thought that it was clearer. I mean, because a lot of the sound recording equipment was pretty rough at that time, and you really had to enunciate clearly so you could be heard. If you've seen uh, Singing in the Rain, the great Moses supposes his toes are roses. I mean, it's very much true that they were going through all these these incredible elocution classes to try and And you think and about those, those yeah. actors like Cary Grant and uh, Clark Gable. All these guys had very identifiable voices, and they were very, very good at their dictional skills. And they, they were just really good technical actors because of their voice a lot of times. We're talking about three movies that changed the world on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYS. So we started in 1903, then jumped nearly 25 years into the future um, from The Great Train Robber to The Jazz Singer in 1927. And then 50 years later, something else happened. Films that changed the world. Well, the last one we're going to talk about is one that we've actually discussed recently, and it is the film, 1977. Wait a minute, we forgot Becky Sharp. Oh, well, that's... Oh, well, that would make a fourth one then. Well, that's, we'll talk about we'll that talk one about later. We'll talk about that later. It's about three strip technicolor. We don't want to bore you with that because we're getting ready to talk about Star Wars again. <laughs> that's right. Right. Yeah. No, so yes, 1977. Well, I, we, I mean, we, we'll do a whole show on color because that's, the, you know, yeah, it'll be interesting to do a whole own. radio show talking about color. <laughs> Let's do <laughs> no, it. No, no, no. We, we're sophisticated. It. Remember, it's Wings of Desire. It's monochrome. Right. We're, we're going to get rid of monochrome, and then we're going to go talk about color, spelled C-O-L-O-U-R. <laughs> so get ready, folks. That one's going to really fly your pants, man, because we're going we're gonna to really make that exciting for Speaking you. of flying, we uh, took to the stars in 1977. That's right. Star Wars. I mean, uh, for a lot of us who, to whom Star Wars was one of the defining moments of our, of our ute, uh, <laughs> basically there are films before Star Wars and after Star Wars. But when Star Wars came out, and it was, you know, it was sort of the first film by so many new film professionals. I mean, guy, these guys who were starting out, who are all now the the venerated, uh, the elder uh, statesmen now. Yeah, they yeah. were yeah, new. You don't blame me. Remember, I said at the Oscars this year, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg were all standing up there saying, "We still control this business, so don't get any ideas, folks." <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Star Wars. Made such an impression on the business, the way it looked, the the success of it, um, the acceptance of things like like Dolby. I mean, just Dolby Sound. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Dolby Sound had been around for a few years. I think Tommy was the first film actually released in Dolby, and that was several and years before. As we talked about, motion control photography mm-hmm. was introduced on Star Wars, which is where the out of sheer necessity, still, yeah. but the camera moves around it and gathers and the w- image using a green screen mat. Yeah. Well, and also uh, the idea of the summer blockbuster. I mean, although there was Jaws two yeah. summers earlier, Star Wars, I would say it was the beginning of the big summer movie, which goes on to this very well, day. Well, they knew it, it could have been a farce with Jaws, you know, but when this thing came out, it was not a farce. The marketeers said, hey, there's something going on here at summertime. Uh, like George said, it's still to this day. So it changed. It changed. Uh, what? What? In what way did it set? Uh, set? It kinda, change everything. It kind of set the business on its ear because the in the seventies, a lot of the film business had kind of gotten into the doldrums. A lot of the movies were looking like like big screen TV shows, and the, the lighting wasn't interesting, and the films were kind of flat and boring. And and you kind of look at like I said, you look at the the, the last big sci fi film before Star Wars was Logan's Run. 
And Logan's Run is okay. Not, I'm not sure, but it's, but it's 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 nothing. Was it wasn't as exciting and fun as Star Wars? No, and, and it's very antiseptic and very kind and of. And the old. most important thing about Star Wars is that it made a ton of money. It made it right off the bat. It wasn't like a sleeper that then it grew made on a everybody. Boatload of money. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing, and for for what they invested in it, I mean, I remember reading when it first came out, and we're like, wow, this movie costs nine and a half million dollars. <laughs> Today, that's like a, a sneeze, a little blip. That's... And remember, old George Lucas, he got there through that wonderful little movie we talked about, America Graffiti. Yeah. That's what gave him the power to make this picture. And from since since that movie came out, movies haven't really been the same because merchandising, Star Wars really set the tone on merchandising, which George Lucas cut an incredible deal where he got all that merchandise. Of course, let me guess, the studios never made that mistake again. No, I mean, from then on, it's you know it's been... It's been they they, they work out the merchandising months before they probably even shoot the movie. Disney Disney did a fair amount of that trying to figure it out, but nobody hit it as hard as Star Wars. Do you think, George? I mean, oh, no, no, no. Star Wars was ringing the big gong on merchandising, and it just never stopped coming. You know, I had trading cards, original trading cards, and I think I actually threw them away recently. But that wasn't the only thing. I had Star Wars everything. So what oh, a brilliant! Everything. So that really was the beginning of the <laughs> the uh, the torrent. Well, what's, of I mean, I can I know. Uh, well, my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law is the biggest Star Wars fan I know, and he was <laughs> he was very young when it first came out. In fact, he would actually uh, he uh, went around speaking like R two D two for several weeks after seeing the movie the first time. But in his house, he has an entire room devoted to Star Wars, How uh, about action that? figures, and you name it. And and he's still he's gone to a few of these Star Wars conventions, and and it's still a very big part of his life. Well, Lucas pretty much, uh, because of the effects work in that movie, set up uh, his oh, that's right. his his uh, his little workshop up there in Marin County. Yeah, what's that called? Yeah. Um, Industrial Light and Industrial Magic was set Light. up to do Star Wars. And to this day, they're still the cutting edge. I work with those guys on Men in Black, and I remember meeting some of those people who worked on Star Wars, and I was just absolutely enthralled by being able because they were there at the beginning and they like george said they did this out of necessity and that's what kind of drove them to get the effect and from now on uh from then on excuse me they became the effects department uh, for right they just, were the ones they're to the catch measure up. yeah yeah and also i mean as far as star wars being a, a cultural Oh, it's just, icon. It's, it, yeah. uh, the people who are surrounded by it, the people who live it, the people who breathe it, you know. Stay it, away from them. Yeah. <laughs> Stay 100 feet away from them, but they're in their costumes. I, I cannot think of, a, of an earlier film that had that much of an effect that maybe Gone with the Wind, but even it did not have the effect that Star Wars not had like on that. its followers. Well, like Howard Hawks attempted it with. Uh, with some of his aviation uh, marvels, those movies that he made, or not Howard Hawks, excuse me, but Howard Hughes. And he made these, they just kept shooting for years and years, but nothing no. even comes close to Star Wars. Gentlemen, we are just about out of time. This has flown by. We could really uh, spend a little, even some more moments with this, and maybe we will. Plus, we'll uh, stay tuned for, say, the, the Technicolor uh, film that uh, somewhere down uh, the road. Becky Sharp. Becky Sharp. Try and find it. Try and yeah, find it. Up. And then... Uh, you know, that way you'll, you'll know what we're talking about. Look it up and stay and tuned to Filmically Perfect right here on 91.3 WYSO. Or, of course, you can find us uh, podcasted on iTunes. We are available for podcast downloads from the YSO website, wyso.org. Or you can go straight to the source, 
filmically perfect as maintained and created and reached at perfectmovie.net. Check it out. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being here. And what in an I I'm much smarter than when I walked in here this evening. I can tell your head's three sizes bigger than it was when we walked in. It's I'm Nikki Dakota. Not that you're talking. any less attractive, though. <laughs> right. It just uh, m- multiplies proportionally. Uh, J. Todd Anderson, thank you for being here. Always my pleasure, Nikki Dakota. Always our pleasure. And George Williman, thanks for being along. Blessings of the day on you. Gentlemen, we are out of here. Thanks. See you next time. Fridays at 1230 on Wiseau. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.